Hi, I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the audio version. What do women want? It's a popular question that a lot of people from a lot of different perspectives like to chew on. What if they just want to be happy? Is that so revolutionary? After all, the founders thought the pursuit of happiness was important enough to enshrine it into the Declaration of Independence. Author Jill Filipovich thinks we have a problem with female pleasure, and that's holding women back. She examines that problem and some solutions in her book, The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. And she joins me now. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So how did you happen upon looking at the idea of looking at happiness through a feminist prism? Well, I had spent almost a decade writing and reporting on women's rights. Um, And I found myself kind of again and again touching on the same kind of set of issues, um, reproductive rights, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence, and realized you know, relatively quickly that it seems like what kind of underpinned not just these problems or issues themselves, um, but also the kind of social and cultural response uh, to the various women that I talked to who are navigating these issues was really underwritten by this hostility to women experiencing or seeking pleasure. Um, and that was, that was interesting to me. Um, and so in exploring that question a bit further, I mean, eventually kind of came to the conclusion that yes, we have a cultural problem with, with female pleasure and with female uh-huh. happiness and that a feminism reoriented toward happiness, um, could actually be a bit more, I think, effective, um, and holistic than a feminism that's just about equal rights. Now you use the term unfinished feminism. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the feminist movement in the U.S. has, I mean, obviously by any measure, been an incredible success. Um, In a relatively short period of time in this grand scheme of human history, um, you know, American women have made exceptional progress. Um, You know, the overwhelming majority of us are illiterate. We go to school. We go to college in higher numbers than ever before. We've entered the workplace. Um, But... We still don't have, I mean, we obviously don't still have, we still don't have gender equality, but we also don't have the kind of robust policy package um, that would really put women on equal footing as men. Instead, we kind of have treated the world as if the way that men's lives and experiences go, as if those are normal, and that women then Mm -hmm. just need to make themselves equal to that. Um, which, you know, I, I think is not, it's not ever going to be quite accomplished. Well, do, I mean, do you think modern feminism is asking the right questions for th- the time that we live in? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist. I am a big proponent of the feminist movement. Um, you know, the book is certainly not meant to be in any way really a, cri- a critique of modern feminism, uh-huh. which I think is, you know, obviously incredible. Um, what I'm hoping to add to the conversation is, you know, what – what are we seeking when we're seeking equality? And who are we making ourselves equal to? And do we even, I mean, is, is that even, is it possible? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Do we want to be equal in a system that was made by and for men? Or do we want to, you know, think about how we could upend the system and make it more amenable to us? Yeah, that's an interesting line of inquiry I think you follow. I mean, you explore women's economic well-being and how that contributes to their happiness and and how women's independence, whether it's through reproductive rights or access to childcare, professional success, et cetera, 
connects to that. And you use the analogy of a house built not for us women. What do you mean by that? Sure. Um, so there's you know famous feminist writer Audre Lorde who wrote a very famous essay called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House as kind of this metaphor um, for how feminists should be thinking of their sort of role in society and whether you just try and kind of change the laws and policies and, you know, uh, do you kind of, I wouldn't say cosmetic, but, you know, you work within established systems to make things better for women or whether you kind of upend the entire thing. Um, so I was kind of working a bit from her metaphor, um, you know, and, and trying to ask this question of, okay, well, we live in this society where our laws, policies, institutions, cultural and social norms um, have largely been uh, shaped and decided and filtered through um, men's experiences. Um, and so given that, <laughs> you know, that's not going to be the most hospitable place for women right. to live and to occupy. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the question I was trying to get to is, you know, what, what would we build if we got to build it? So you think the house is a teardown, not a renovation? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think that the house has some good foundations, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I think maybe it is a teardown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, they, how, how would you explain to people who feel that there is so much left still left to achieve for with regard to women's equality um, and that pursuing happiness almost sounds a little frivolous with the sort of weight of other things that need to be achieved. Uh, I, I'm, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I think it's something that people, um, people sort of react to. I mean, and, and what's your pushback to that? Yeah. I mean, when I was writing the book, that was frankly kind of how I felt sometimes like, okay, we now have, you know, Donald Trump as president is like, is it going to sound silly that I'm out here saying, actually, we should try and make women happy? Um, I think, though, what came, what became very clear to me when I was writing this is that if you put women's, and it's not just like the ability of women to be happy every day, right? That's not, it's not like everybody gets a kitten. It's this idea that women should have the same right that, you know, white men have long had, which is the ability to pursue a life that feels meaningful, to pursue knowledge, um, and to seek and form their own identities. And if you create the landscape in which women can do that, and if you make that the big goal, all of this other stuff that we are sort of constantly fighting for and fighting over, it sort of naturally follows. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if the argument is, or if the sort of uh, political ideal is that women get to self-determine their own lives and identities and are free to uh, pursue um, happiness and information and identity according to their own path, we stop fighting about reproductive rights <laughs> because women can't do that unless we can control our own bodies. Um, you know, I think we stop seeing even things like, you know, work family um, and paid leave debates through the lens of, okay, how, you know, do we do companies need to give women leave or does the federal government need to do it and is it two months is it unpaid is it whatever i think if we start filtering parenthood through this lens of it should it should be pleasurable um and so you know and, and work should also be a route to which you know many people find meaning and identity um then i think these kind of debates over whether you should even have this stuff disappear because 
the conclusion is obvious. Um, and instead, you're kind of tinkering, or tinkering around the edges of, okay, well, what is the best way to structure um, to structure these policies? So I think a lot of the sort of traditional feminist issues will naturally, almost all of them, will kind of naturally mm -hmm. be swept up um, through a kind of happiness and pleasure-centered agenda. And I think, you know, the other thing which you've talked about is the idea that you know, uh, money doesn't buy you happiness, but economic well-being does go some way towards achieving that. Um, and hence the interconnectedness with policy uh, prescriptions. Um, is, is that a fair assessment of how you look at the world? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of the research on happiness, you know, it'll lead with this line, like, money doesn't buy you happiness. And that's true, but only above a certain baseline. So, you know, there isn't evidence that being wildly rich, you know, will make you any happier than somebody who is, you know, merely upper middle class. Um, but there is a lot of evidence that being poor will make you pretty unhappy, or that being economically unstable will make you unhappy, or that feeling as if relative to the other people in your community, you're struggling, um, will also make you unhappy. So economic stability, and, you know, the reality is that women and people of color in the U.S. Uh, tend to be significantly less economically stable than um, white men, you know, is a real cornerstone to this. And how women achieve economic stability, um, of course, like, just like men, we need to make money and keep it and be, be able to invest it, you know, and sort right. of, all of all of those things. Um, but, you know, we also, reproductive rights is an economic issue. Um, the ability to be free from violence, both at home and in the workplace um, is an economic issue, as you know, as well as just like a basic human rights issue. Um, and so, when we're talking about economics and getting women on equal financial and economic footing as men, there are just a lot of other issues that that come into play um, mm -hmm. that are less salient for men. Mm -hmm. One of the things, well, I love many things about your book, um, but one of the things I love is that you explore the value of female friendships and female relationships. Uh, in a way that I think is very, um, very new and very true to uh, women in a way that I think probably most men wouldn't understand and would certainly not connect it to any policy uh, prescriptions. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's, how did you come up with the idea of sort of acknowledging that part of uh, female relationships? Yeah, I mean, it was mostly just sort of looking at my life and thinking, okay, well, what has been the kind of most interesting and informative um, and, you know, sort of most happiness-inducing parts of my life? And my female friends were at the top of the list. Um, and then I, as I was doing research on what makes people happy, I mean, the, the sort of big thing that comes up again and again is connectedness. So whether mm -hmm. that's, you know, being connected within your marriage or having a wide social circle or going to church, um, feeling like you have kind of deep tie connections to a variety of people does, you know, is linked to both kind of better psychological outcomes, so being, being happier, um, and yeah. also better physical health outcomes. People live longer when they're more connected. Um, they have fewer health problems. And for women specifically, you know, having having friends is directly linked to better health, to recovering from certain forms of cancer faster. I mean, it's just like really incredible research on the benefits 
um, that friendships have in women's lives. And, you know, so really wanted to give that kind of top billing in the book. Well, given that, uh, you know, we have a ways to go with our legislatures <laughs> um, being uh, comp comprised of as many women as there are men, uh, let's put that aside for the moment. Uh, if you could wave your magic wand in this and in this magical world, our legislators were looking at the world in a similar way. Uh, what would you like to see them do sort of fairly quickly that could materially affect women's happiness? Yeah, I mean, one thing is I, I would love to see um, the sort of variety of family structures and new ways in which we're living our lives uh, really recognized um, in things like the tax code um, and also in, you know, how uh, we, we treat uh, sort of next of kin for rights of inheritance and medical decisions. So and this is an idea that came from Anne Friedman, who's another feminist writer. But, you know, having something like a national database um, where each person would get to pick their, their person. So the person who gets to, you know, be the one in charge of making their medical decisions if they're incapacitated, who is kind of their de facto heir if they die, um, you know, and you, and, you know, have the box that you check that you can set this up in the traditional way and have it be, you know, your husband or wife and then your kids. Um, you know, but for somebody who is not married or is married, but just wants to structure this differently, you right. know, be able to designate, you know what, I trust my best friend Shannon to make my medical decisions for me um, over just about anybody else. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I want to designate her as my person, it seems like that would not be a super difficult thing to do. Um, you know, this I think would also be helpful for people who have non-traditional family structures who are co-raising their children with a friend. Um, I think that would be hugely helpful. I think policies that really address the time constraints that a lot of women and men as well kind of feel in their lives. Um, so policies that, especially I think for people who are in wage labor jobs, make the minimum wage high enough so that if you're working 40 hours a week, you're not living in poverty. Right. Um, you know, but that also really holds companies accountable to give workers both stable hours um, and to not have a workforce basically made up of people that are functionally giving the company enough hours um, that it could be divided up, you know, 40 hours or 35 hours per person. Um, but instead, everybody's working 15 hours at three different companies in order to, in order to make ends meet so that the companies don't have to pay for benefits. Um, I think really trying to, you know, stop that practice, which is incredibly detrimental and stressful, especially on low-income families, um, would be very important. And then, you know, paid vacation and paid sick time and leave. Um, and including maternity leave and right, paternity leave. and paternity leave. Yeah. And, you know, creating a mechanism to require, frankly, that fathers take it as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, th that package... I think is is incredibly valuable, not just so that people do have the actual time off, but also to send a message that we realize that, that and the government realizes that we are not just worker bees. We are full human beings uh -huh. who deserve, you know, to enjoy the fullness of our lives. Um, you know, and that includes time to bond with a partner, to have sex, to go on vacation and experience something new, that these aren't luxuries or frivolities, um, that these are the things that, that make up a life and they're valuable. 
I think there are a lot of uh, interesting and creative ideas in the book. And I think that uh, in the current uh, climate we are living in, perhaps uh, one way to open the door is to make the case that this would make men happy too. Um, <laughs> that's where we are. But uh, I think there's lots of wonderful things. It's a really uh, thought provoking book. Uh, writer Jill Filipovich. Her book is called The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. You can read about this and lots of other great books by women at 52weeks52books52women.com. Jill, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome.